Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, Russell James, General Manager of Hydrogen and Future Fuels at ATCO. He has over 19 years experience in energy, including the delivery of small to large scale energy and utility infrastructure projects. He has extensive experience of gas and energy markets, pricing and regulations. Over the past four years, he has played a key role in all of ATCO's hydrogen related activities, including the Clean Energy Innovation Hub, as well as a continued focus on the Clean Energy Innovation Park, a commercial scale renewable hydrogen production project. He has a wealth of knowledge to share with us, so I'm sure it's going to be a fantastic episode and look forward to getting into the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hi Russ, it's great to catch up with you again. Welcome to the Exploring Hydrogen podcast. Thanks Andy, it's great to be here and, and good to catch up with you again. Appreciate the opportunity to have a chat to you today. First perhaps we can start, if you could give the listeners a bit of an overview of ATCO as an organisation. Yeah, of course. ATCO actually stands for Alberta Trailer Company. A lot of people don't know that originally, but the humble beginnings of sort of the modular trailers, as we call them, or modular huts, or demountables, that they might be called in Australia, or even dongers, as we call them here in Western Australia, a very colloquial <laughs> term. But we just celebrated our 75th year in operations. And so those beginnings started with those modular buildings and still continue to this day. Over time, and particularly around the, the 80s, ATCO acquired Canadian Utilities in the Alberta heartland, and that involved electricity generation, transmission, distribution, gas processing, gas storage, gas transmission, distribution, and that really grew us into the energy sector. And, and some call it a little bit like the mouse swallowing the elephant. It was a really big leap into that area, but one that's been really valuable for the organisation, really diverse of other business as well. And so from that time, we've grown out into a lot of different jurisdictions, and particularly in Australia, We've been here for over 60 years around that structures business, which was set up in South Australia all those years ago and actually supported Cyclone Tracy after the rebuild. So we sent a, a whole lot of accommodation up to the Northern Territory to help home displaced people at the time. We own and operate the Osborne power station over in South Australia. We also have a power station in Caratha with Horizon Power. One of our largest assets here in Australia is the gas distribution network here, which is around 800,000 connection points. It's around 14,000 kilometres of network, and that support residential homes, businesses and industrial customers to be connected to natural gas here in the state. We're also looking and really focusing in on renewables globally. We've divested some of our coal assets that we're operating in Alberta and have really moved forward in particularly in the renewable sector. And in Australia here, we're developing a 325 megawatt pumped hydro project in Bathurst. And also with some of our transmission expertise, we're looking to grow the business here in Australia with a real focus in the renewable energy zones, as well as hydrogen and future fuels, which I look after. I'm looking forward to talking further about that today in a bit more detail. That's great an overview, Russ. And like you say, from humble beginnings, I believe now you've got over 6,200 employees, over 22 billion worth of assets. You've been operational in about 100 countries, as I understand it, 75,000 
kilometres of electrical power lines and 64,000 kilometres of natural gas pipelines. So you've certainly grown over the last 75 years. Yeah, really impressive growth. But what I really love and, and why I've been here for over 20 years is the humble beginnings still comes through. And it's very family orientated business. Nancy Southern, the granddaughter of the founders at the time, is still the chair and CEO of the business. And she'll be over next week for our board meeting and very active throughout the organisation. But we do what we say we're going to do. And that includes operating in the communities that we operate, supporting those communities and also supporting our employees in what they're doing. So that's why I love working for ACO and continue to work here today. But it is impressive and every day is different, but we're working on different areas in different jurisdictions and it keeps it really interesting. That's great to hear. So hydrogen, let's perhaps first start with the Clean Energy Innovation Hub, hub which is if you could explain more, I believe it's a bit of a test bed for um, hybrid energy solutions. So integrating a natural gas, solar PV, battery storage and hydrogen production. Yeah, really interesting project and one that was supported by ARENA, Australian Renewable Energy Agency here. And it's been in operation around three years. At the time that we were conceptualising the Clean Energy Innovation Hub, it was as a gas distribution network. And our main operation centre is in Jandicott. And we've used that area and, and when ATCO acquired the gas distribution network here, we rebuilt our main office and centralised a lot of our operations down into that Jandicott site. And the first phase of that redevelopment, we really treated as an opportunity to showcase gas appliances and the use of gas in commercial, industrial and, and also residential applications. And so we've got things like gas-powered air conditioning, of which not a huge amount of people know about. But say for our main operations centre, we have four 85 kilowatt Yanmar engines that cool the facility. It is a 24-7 operation down there. So our control room is located in that site. And so things like gas-powered air conditioning work really well in, in reducing the operations and, and maintenance and OPEX costs of our energy. You know, it's a huge part of the energy mix. And it's actually, it's a lower emission standard in, in Western Australia while we've got so much coal connected to the grid. But energy security, is, as you can think, is really important. With our control room operation down on site, we can't afford to have outages or anything else because we're responding to those 800,000 customers 24-7, 365 days a year. So taking on that test bed of showcasing gas technology, we wanted to look at the role of gas distribution networks more broadly into the future. And so we set the site up when we did a second phase redevelopment and that was all our operation centre. We actually have a training facility down there, which is a registered training organisation where we train all our operatives that operate the network and construct the network and maintain the network. And more recently also we run some hydrogen courses, which is pretty exciting with the hydrogen that we've got on site, we're able to do so. So to continue on with that test bed approach, we decided to put more solar panels than we required our energy load. We have around 100 kilowatts of electrical demand at any point in time. And so we chose to put 300 kilowatts of solar onto the rooftop. Now that simulates similar to what you'd see out on a electricity network. There's a lot of rooftop solar coming in, into the network. That rooftop solar is producing at a time that most people don't need the energy. And so what can we do with that excess solar to allow more solar to be installed and converted into something that can be used outside of that period? So in peak times when people are coming home, you know, switching on their cooking devices or taking showers, it's a way that we can store that excess renewable as another form. And so firstly, that was into batteries. So we put 500 kilowatt hours of battery in. And the aim of those batteries are we run the site overnight with those batteries. 
we charge them up. So if you imagine the duck curve, and most people will be familiar with the duck curve, but that's essentially, you know, the inflection of the produced renewable versus the demand. And so you get these issues of needing a lot of power outside of the time when solar is being produced. So you need storage to be able to do that. So solar is one way. So those batteries deplete overnight. Now, what happens in the morning, we have about 40 kilowatts of load. As the sun starts to come up and people start to come into the office, we still have excess power as that solar ramps up. So we recharge those batteries and say by about 10 till 2, which is really when the solar is humming along, we actually fire up a 200 kilowatt electrolyzer and convert water and split that through obviously a proton exchange membrane electrolyzer, which is what we have down on site into hydrogen gas and oxygen. Now, the moment we don't capture the oxygen, we just disperse it to atmosphere. But what we do is we capture that that hydrogen at 30 bar into a carbon steel vessel. And what we were doing when we first started it up over three years ago was blending that in through an ATCO design blending skid into all those gas appliances that I spoke about before. So gas powered air conditioning, hot water, cooking, and also through all the pipe, materials, meters, fittings that we'd find out onto our network. So as a test bed, it was a really important step to showcase gas distribution network's ability to handle renewable gases such as hydrogen and not being able to or not really needing to change any appliances. So at 10% levels, we proved that that was able to be done. So that was the first part of the Clean Energy Innovation Hub in really demonstrating how in a real world example behind the meter, this is what could be the art of possible into the future of networks supporting networks. Fantastic. And what were some of the biggest learnings then as you went through that process? I suppose some of the learnings was procuring an electrolyzer was different at that point in time. When we were buying a 200 kilowatt electrolyzer, you couldn't go down to Bunnings and buy one off the shelf. So it was, <laughs> it was always different procurement practices around getting some of these. The integration of it was really important and particularly some of the regulations and standards and bringing the technical regulator along as well. Even connecting some of these things to an electrical network was different. Western Power and others hadn't seen these sorts of things before. So you really had to work hand in hand with the utilities and technical regulators to, uh, to get through this process. And that's an important step in you know, having a real world example to work through for, so that future projects can also benefit from that and, and we can really expand the industry. How far have things been taken from the regulation perspective? Have they, the regulator sort of brought on board the suggestions that you've, you've taken to them through going through this process? Yeah, we've got a really good relationship with Building and Energy here and DMERS as well that look after the regulations. And that is really having a collaborative approach to these projects. It's an important step for moving hydrogen forward here in Western Australia, but also in Australia. And so the next step in the project, and one we can talk about a little bit further, is a blending project which takes it out from behind our meter, and then we're actually blending out into the streets around the Jandicott area, and we're blending to 2,700 homes and businesses around that area. And that step with the regulator was really putting together our business case, putting together our stakeholder engagement plans, and making sure that our customers are comfortable with the testing that we've done. And so is the technical regulator, that there's going to be no impact to appliances, no impact to calorific values and charging. And these are all important parts to do as we try and increase the amount of renewable gases coming into the network. What percent was it that blended into the network at? And what percentage do you think you can get up to? Yeah, good question. So at the moment, Andy, You'll hear a lot talked about 10% here in Australia particularly. Most of that is bound by what the appliances can handle or what they're tested for. The gas distribution network of yesteryear went before we had the Northwest Shelf and on and offshore gas 
reserves was made through coal gasification. For some people that know, you know, it has a really high hydrogen content. And so there's some jurisdictions still around the globe, such as Hong Kong, that are running on 50%. That's that town's gas we talk about. So it was a manufactured gas. So really high hydrogen content and those appliances, and we've actually got a bit of a museum piece down at Jandicott to show the appliances of yesteryear, we're able to handle those higher levels. That really comes down to the burner tips or the appliance and what that's been tested to. So currently appliances as part of the standards are tested to 13% hydrogen content. So with a bit of an engineering factor in, we talk about 10%. In the UK, they're testing it at 20%. In Canada as well, we've got some blending projects in Fort Saskatchewan that's currently doing 5%, but that can also do 20% under those levels. So the two aspects are what are the appliances tested to today and then what are the gas quality allowances for hydrogen into it? Now, the gas quality allowances can be changed. And so that's just a legislative process. And then the other one with appliances is all around setting some timelines, in which case we'll be able to handle higher blends to allow gas appliance manufacturers to adapt their burners and the like. But we have run programs before. We converted one of our our networks to LPG down in Albany. So we've actually done full network conversions back in the past as well. And I was reading as well that the technology from the Clean Energy Innovation Hub, you've got a partnership or a um, collaboration in California. Yeah, really exciting project and one that we've replicated over in California with SoCal Gas. So what we've tried to do is replicate that project for other users that may benefit from all the learnings and the like that we've done. And that's the approach that we like to take at ATCO. It's almost a crawl, walk, run. We'd rather learn on these smaller jobs and start to build to scale. And that's what we're, we're still focused on the large scale export projects, but also let's build it manageable and build skill and capability and expertise. And so under that project, we're able to assist SoCal Gas to replicate what we've got down through the hub and also the hybrid home, which is another part of our site down at Jandicott. It's essentially two modular huts built by ATCO and it's a renewable home. So at the moment, we've done a lot of our blend testing through that home. It's what you'd see on the street of Perth today. And more excitingly, in this year, we're looking at bringing that home into 100% appliances as well, uh, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, great stuff. And the purpose in Southern California gas is more for an educational piece, is it? And the social license that they're focused on? Yeah, I probably can't comment completely on their drivers, but very similar to what we started with our hub. You need to be able to showcase this to potential users, customers, to the technical and safety regulators as you go forward. So I think it's a really important step to continue to do that. Of course, when we started the project, it was pretty exciting to have a project in California and then COVID struck. And so nobody was able to go do a visit. I would have loved to go to California and uh, and see some of the, the hydrogen work that's on foot over there. But alas, we can do things over team these days. Seems like half my life is over teams at the moment. <laughs> exactly. So the Clean Energy Innovation Hub is humming along quite nicely. And um, what stage are you at with the Clean Energy Innovation Park? Yeah, so the Clean Energy Innovation Park we saw as a really important step up. We've done the, the small trial pilot project at the hub and a really important project, particularly here in WA. But as we really look towards the future, how do we scale up and get to size and try and find some efficiencies that size does bring? It's interesting at the time, you know, 200 kilowatts seemed like a very large electrolyzer at that point. This point in Australia, the largest electrolyzer we've got is a 1.25 megawatt over in South Australia. So our leap to now 10 megawatts, and we've seen some projects be landed in the 10 megawatt range up with Yarra fertilizers and AGIG is also working on a 10 megawatt project over in Victoria. But the project that we're working on at 10 megawatt scale, 
was really working through the basis of design of what a facility can look like at that stage. Is it behind the metre wind? Is it grid connected? And how does that actually result in a cost per kilogram? The production of that site's around four tonnes per day uh, capable. And so to put that in perspective of how much hydrogen that produces, the Toyota Mirai's that support the fleet of the refuelling project, which we'll talk about shortly, that can refuel around 800 of those a, a day. So it's quite a sizable jump in terms of production wow. levels, but a really important step to get to size and scale. When we built 200 kilowatts, you know, it seemed oversized, but these days we've got people knocking on the door wanting to procure hydrogen and, and use it to really get the industry going. So we've used the skill and expertise that we've built on the hub to now get to a, a 10 megawatt scale and the facility that we've designed we now can replicate and the same with what we talked about with socal gas we're looking into not only western australia but other jurisdictions around australia to use that basis of design as, as a next step up and try and work with industrial process users mobility users all with a pathway to try and get to export in the, the long term and is that going to be in the same area as the hub so we've got a couple of options that we're looking at. It, some are in the jurisdictions and it, it's where you locate these facilities that are close to demand sinks. So things like distribution networks for gas, also transport hubs, industrial process users are an important step. But there's also the ability to co-locate these locations with wind and solar behind the meter. So it reduces the impact of transmission and distribution charges, but it does add a cost in terms of compression and tube trailer and transportation as well on top of that. Are you able to comment on the cost per kilo at this stage? Not just at this stage, but I think that the two main factors that we see with the cost per kilo really come down to there's some capital elements to it. But the main driver is energy input. It's, it's a very high percentage, you know, 60, 70 plus percent of the makeup in the cost of hydrogen. And particularly in Australia at this point in time, with some of the energy volatility, that creates a challenge for hydrogen production. And we need to see those costs continue to come down. So as renewables start to reduce, or there's policy positions that are put in, or cross-subsidies that may exist, these are the things that'll help the hydrogen production costs come down, which is what we're looking to. And is it going to be primarily solar or wind, or what's the rough combination of those? You've got to use both, I think, wherever possible. And Solar's got a great production curve through the day, but if you're installing large facilities, you want to utilise them as, as much as possible to essentially utilise the plant, but also reduce the cost per kilo that you're producing from that site. So being able to use both, but also understanding that there's LGCs and the like that need to be procured for the site to certify it as we don't like to use colours all the time, but if the ease of knowledge, green hydrogen, as, as people refer to it as, then yeah, you've got to start to look at both sources. And you touched upon it before, the collaboration with Fortescue on the refuelling stations. Yeah, it's been a really good project and it's you know, I've had a long relationship with FFI and the, the team in the early stages of the establishment of, of FFI was where we started to discuss it. Also a really strong relationship with Toyota. And so what we started to discuss and as the hub had got into operations, what are the other sectors that can really come on and help activate demand and so that we can get to that scale that I touched on before. And transportation is a really good one that not only from a price point, but also from a usability standpoint. When you think about electrification of fleet and trying to get to zero tailpipe emissions, battery electric vehicles definitely have a place and a fuel cell electric vehicle also has a place. You know, people sometimes forget they're both electric vehicles. All that changes with them is how the power is getting into that electric motor. And so if you think trucks, buses and those sorts of heavy fleet, they are going to struggle to have batteries to 
affect their gross vehicle carrying capability and then go further distances as well. So we saw hydrogen as a really key step to debating that. Trucks and buses, quite hard to get at that stage. We did do a bus trial here in Western Australia, you know, over a decade ago. We're quite early adopters in the state for that. But to get a multitude of those buses or trucks at this point in time, they're not quite there. So we wanted to get the first commercial fleet onto the road, not only just for being able to demonstrate it, but to break that chicken or egg cycle that people often talk about. Where do I fill it up? So I'm not sending you a vehicle until I know that I can fill it up somewhere. Well, we had access to renewable hydrogen and we just needed to get a sizable amount of vehicles to utilise that to justify the expenditure of putting a refueler in. So hence the relationship with FFI was really good. You know, they had an aspiration as well in hydrogen production, what that can do for their operations just as us. And so we're able to secure 15 Toyota Mirais and also some assistance from the state government here with the renewable hydrogen funding rounds that they were running. That enabled us to to have some certainty around that the refueler will be used. And so we've co-located that at the Jandicott Clean Energy Innovation Hub. It's a 700 bar refueler. So the great thing about that is it can refill one of our Toyota Mirais. You've got the Generation 2 Mirai that the team drive around. Looks really cool. It's in blue. Drives amazing. Uh, But we can refill that 5.6 kilogram tank capacity in sort of four to five minutes. And that tank capacity gets you around 650 kilometres. So it looks, you know, feels, you know, doesn't smell. The acceleration on those are just spectacular, aren't they? It's great. I do have a propensity to put it into sports mode just to enjoy it, but I need to put it in eco mode, uh, I think, most of the time. It is fun. Is there going to be a focus then next on the 350 bar refueling for the larger vehicles and trucking? Yeah, good question, Andy. I think some of the manufacturers are starting to look at 700 bar for trucks. So we will start to see some of the new generation come out in 700 bar. At this point in time, you know, we are investigating options for 350 bar because the smaller cars will not get that aggregative demand. So for our new facilities and some of the other facilities, we're definitely investigating both options for 350 and 700 bar. And to take a step back, do you know where those pressures actually sort of came from? Or, you know, how, how do we kind of end up with 700 bar for cars and until this stage or 350 for trucking? The way I put it to is space. So in a car... You don't want to take the space out of the boot to not be able to fit the golf clubs in and the the kids in the back. (laughs) So you're a bit more restricted to space. So being able to get to 700 bar, not only can fast fill, so that's the user experience type element, but also a space in a bus or a truck or those types of vehicles. You know, the buses, they can put the, uh, the cylinders and tanks on the roof because they're not restricted for space there. And generally those operations will allow bus to sit there for 20 minutes and refill or or 30 minutes or or longer because it's not a problem at the end of a shift. So compression adds a lot of cost and so does storage. So wherever you can change that and not be required to compress it to such high levels and also pre-chill it, which is another aspect that we do down at the site. When getting to 700 bar, we pre-chilled the hydrant to minus 41 to counter the reverse Jules-Thompson effect that happens when you're dispensing at that sort of rate. So that's really where it's been driven by. Now it's all about range, I I think. So when you look at trucks, particularly in Western Australia, you've got a long distance to travel and Canada's very similar and other jurisdictions. So where you want heavy haul to be able to travel further, 700 bar does allow you to do that and carry more energy in a smaller space. And the discussions about range anxiety seem to be becoming more and more frequent, you know, particularly people with even e-vehicles where there are more refueling stations but if you've got to kind of map out where your route is and leave a, a bit in the tank so to speak it does cause people a bit of that anxiety 
Yeah, I think I've had it. I've had it a couple of times where I pushed it a little bit close with the Toyota Mirai and I'm, I'm rolling into the station at about 20 kilometres and people are clicking their tongues at me for what I'm doing. So having one station, it is a concern. As long as you don't have to get out and push him, it wouldn't be a great look, would it? Yeah, probably good for my exercise, but not so good for my, uh, for my look. And in a suit, not so great as well. But I think it is quite important that we take a jurisdictional approach and you know geographical approach to where these are located. I think there's a multitude of ways that it's being done. On the east coast of Australia, it's been really good to see states combine and look at things like the Hydrant Highway between you know, New South Wales and Victoria and also Queensland and how that can integrate. That's a really important part of the nation coming together to see how this is best placed to do. And that's more so for larger scale public filling stations, for sort of back to base operations. You know, and things that we've looked at, particularly with co-located rail and heavy haulage and fleet, it's around where's that central or focal point to be able to as, fill as many vehicles to utilise it. What's their, what's their range they do each day and when do they return and what's their filling cycle and the like. And they're those important things that we like to do to work through with customers that are looking to decarbonise their fleet operations. We've got a lot of knowledge in how to design systems and look at the compression, look at the storage, look at how you want to fill the vehicle, how frequently you need to, how many you need to do back to back. They're all those things that we like to work through to find an optimised solution for, for customers. And the same way looks at how you do a larger fleet rollout across Australia. Perhaps if we can zoom out and look at things on a global stage and you've seen or you've kind of touched upon the work that you've been doing in Fort Saskatchewan and California, can you comment or can you talk about where Australia sits, what we're doing well, what we need to kind of catch up with other countries and anything that you think could be taken advantage of from other countries and brought to Australia? Yeah, there's a lot that we can take globally. I think support for the industry at this point in time to break through some of the bounds of things like price is a really important step. And so around the globe, you see, say, for instance, Canada, there's a clean fuel standards and sort of carbon pricing mechanisms that ratchet up over time to even sort of around $170 a tonne by 2030. So around the commerciality and economics of hydrogen, that helps in leaps and bounds. So suddenly you've got an economic product because there's a looming tax or price that's going to be applied to that carbon that's emitted for those operators. And so we've seen projects be able to start to stand up on that basis. You know, you look at the Inflation Reduction Act that's happening over in America as well. In the US. The US, that's huge. That's huge for the industry in reducing that price. There's a lot of talk about 2 to $3 per kilo, but without some of these mechanisms in play, it's quite challenging to even get started because of some of the cost that's implied with renewable hydrogen or even blue hydrogen with sequestration that we've got. So I think Australia's got a, a bit to move on quite quickly and a, a coordinated national framework would be beneficial, which will allow people that are looking to invest in hydrogen and, and use hydrogen to move forward. The challenge is who pays for it? And that's always the question, and how is that paid for? But you look, a lot of jurisdictions, it's governments coming in in the early stages to get this going and establish the market. Just as been done in the LNG, LNG in the early days, you know, even the transmission pipelines and even things like renewable assets when they first stood up. There was requirements to have subsidies and, and other parts put in and obligations put in to help activate them. And then that helps the costs come down as more projects get up. So what are your biggest challenges uh, within your team at the moment? I think challenges for us at the moment is trying to distill a lot of the opportunities that are coming through. Hydrant's very exciting at this point in time, particularly here in Australia. A lot of people are, are looking at projects or very interested in, in hydrogen. 
And we really want to get to the point of landing projects and being able to build projects as an infrastructure owner and operator. So it is trying to distill through, to build knowledge within the industry and, and the like, but really it's trying to move projects forward. We're only a small team, but we're very agile and, and nimble, and we've got some really good skill and capability within the team. But we need to focus on projects that are going to start to move the dial and, and get to commerciality. And that's part of the challenge is really resolving offtake and really resolving things like the renewable energy input price. So working with partners to collaborate to try and get those factors down is vitally important. And I think, you know, this is an industry where collaboration is really key. Each party has a role to play. There's enough to go around for everybody if we get to the the goals of export uh, into 2030 and 2040 and, and beyond. So in this early stage, it is working together with like-minded companies and users, and that's not only domestically but also internationally, to start these projects moving and, and recognise where we all can work together for a greater good. And that's a lot of a focus of our team is working alongside our partners to get projects moving along. Fantastic and great to hear. On your comments of offtake, is that primarily domestic or you're looking internationally as well? We're doing both. I think, as I said a little bit earlier, we've taken a crawl, walk, run sort of approach and that's we want to build domestic capability and hence why we've built the hub, while we're looking at a 10 megawatt facility as well and while we're looking at some even larger projects for domestic use across Australia, we see that as a really important step, not only just to build skill, capability, expertise and knowledge here and also, as I say, step up the size of projects to get to export. But also, I think, to establish and show that Australia has a real opportunity for hydrogen. We can't jump straight today from the 1.25 megawatts into 25 gigawatts of of production and hope that it all happens. So we really should be starting to build a whole hydrogen economy here. And and similarly, that's the way that the natural gas market was, was built out. We started to look at domestic supply and converted networks down here from Towns Gas onto onshore gas. And similarly, we should be utilising the products and setting those goals and targets to show the rest of the globe that we're really committed to doing that. So we need to decarbonise. That's our part and that's our role to the, the global economy. And so we have to do that domestically as well as for export markets. So for export, we're, we're definitely looking at export scale projects and the timing around those. Globally, Geographical locations have their own advantages in Canada, very low cost gas, you know, geological formations, you know, we operate salt caverns for storage as well. And we're also uh, doing carbon sequestration over there. So more of a blue approach. We like to talk about carbon intensity more so when it comes to hydrogen. We have low carbon nat gas with sequestration. So we're using ATR technology with around 95% carbon capture off off the back of that for for refinery and blending and other applications in Canada. So that has an advantage. It's very low cost, cost hydrogen. It enables markets and jurisdictions to start to adopt hydrogen and other other sort of derivatives while renewables start to really come down. So from both jurisdictions, we're working out how we can work with export partners to really activate from 2030 and, and beyond. Is that the collaboration with Suncor Energy that you're referring to there? Yeah, so that's that's a domestic project. That's been a really, 
really great collaboration with Suncor, and that is uh, that's the project. So it's it's ATR technology around three hundred thousand tons per annum with carbon capture and salt cavern storage. Really interesting fact in Canada. I was talking to the colleagues over there. It was forty degrees here. It was minus forty one over in Canada, and so their heating load is seven times as great in winter than it is in summer. And so essentially, when it's really that cold and you've got wind chill, things like that at minus forty one, the sun's not shining. The wind's generally not blowing. It's great. It's actually quite still. And so heating becomes such a, it's an essential service if you don't have heating over there. So how do you do that outside of something like hydrant as a, as a displacement or transitionary fuel? So that's why that's such an important project over there versus, you know, what we're looking at here in Australia. And presumably the efficiency of batteries, it drops off when you're getting that cold. Yes, correct. And batteries serve a purpose for sort of short duration. We're really talking about long duration. So some of that duration storage gets into that we need salt caverns to be able to store that amount of hydrogen to then pull it out at those times of the really peak loads coming from a heating load. Certainly a lot of challenges to work through. And on the offtake, where do you see as the kind of low-hanging fruit, as it were, is it going to be the heavy road transport, the gas blending networks, how close is your potential site to heavy industrial users, so industrial heat, industrial feedstock, and can you perhaps comment on how you see the shipping and aviation industry maybe changing in the future? Yeah, good question, Andy. I think we're focused in all sectors, and so I think particularly around Australia, you see a lot of the clusters or hubs that that people talk about. And that's trying to co-locate and bring a multitude of, of users, producers, technology providers in under one roof. And we participate in, in not only ones in, in West Australia, but South Australia and, and looking at Sydney and into New South Wales. So the concept around that is being able to combine those users to get to scale. And so that comes across from mobility. It comes into industrial process use. It comes into gas blending and, and even for power generation as well. The low-hanging fruit, I, I suppose, gets to be a bit of a challenging question. Gas distribution networks today, we could put 10% hydrogen into all of our networks here in Western Australia with some slight changes to legislation, slight changes to regulation to allow cost pass through and, and the like for uh, for consumers to be able to put hydrogen into the networks. So that's ready there as a demand sink to, to help activate the market. Natural gas here in West Australia, very cheap uh, because of the domestic gas reservation policy, slightly different on the East Coast, but that comes into the question of who pays for that service. So there's policies and elements being looked at around obligations on percentage targets, similar to the RET in the electricity market, um, which will help that move along. So that's one part. The transportation sector, very much a low-hanging fruit when it comes to a price point. At scale, you can start to get hydrogen to a comparable diesel perspective. All it needs is things like clean fuel subsidies and other parts or jurisdictions or governments or users saying, looking at our fleet, we have the ability to put some policy in around zero tailpipe emission fleet. And that helps to start to get trucks, buses and other areas onto the road. And so That's a really good one, but also chicken or egg we come back to. You've also got to roll that in with some infrastructure providers so that people can fill that. That's another really important one. The hard to abate sector is is really an important one. So industrial users and feedstock, how do some of those users that may not have the opportunity for electrification, how do they really get to that point of decarbonisation and hydrogen steps in at that point? We really need to make sure that you're getting costs down. You don't want prices to go through the roof, but they're going to have to do something around that. And that's where we like to work alongside those consumers and users to come up with optimum designs to help them decarbonise to meet their objectives and and carbon reduction strategies. 
That's great. And where do you see Atco as an organisation, or should I say more, your team, the Future Fuels team, in five years from now and then 10 years from now? Yeah, so I suppose five years from now, I see us as operating facilities in multiple jurisdictions across Australia. At the moment, we're looking at anywhere from 10 up to 200 to 400 megawatt projects. And over that period of time and some of the timelines that we're working on, they should be coming online within that time frame. And so that's where I'd, I'd like us to be, to have a business unit that has an operational centric business that is across Australia, but also that we've reached FID on some, some export scale projects that we're working alongside. So they're the focus of, of what we're doing at the moment. And we set out a business plan and objective on setting those targets so that our team are really focused on what we do and some of the things that we may put one to one side because it's not in line with what we do. We want to be an infrastructure owner and operator and the business model that we've always done is to do that in collaboration with long-term partners. And so that's really what we take on to both de-risk the operation from a customer's perspective, but also from our perspective in a risk-reward model. And your position title, General Manager of Hydrogen and Future Fuels, are you investigating, say, biofuels? Yeah, we've, we've looked at multitude of different fuels. So anything from, we've looked at biomethanes and particularly as part of our gas distribution network, it is the role of renewable gases that can help decarbonise that operation. So biomethane is another opportunity to get a renewable gas into the network. It is essentially, you know, natural gas, it's the same specification. So the percentage issues that we talked about before of up to 10% don't apply to that gas, but it is still decarbonising our customers' operations. We're also looking at things like synthetic methane or methanation, as it's called. So that's where our renewable hydrogen can be combined with carbon capture and utilisation. So we are looking at a, at a project that with Asaka gas, um, and that's a really important step at looking at you know, how you can actually utilise carbon. You, know, you can either sequester it or you can utilise it. So when you combine renewable hydrogen with that carbon across a catalytic, then catalytic process, then we can produce synthetic methane. It's got the same gas qualities. So when people talk about how we're going to export hydrogen and how we're going to get lower carbon alternatives to customers into Korea and Japan, this is one opportunity that we're working on with Osaka Gas to explore that. Now you can utilise the existing infrastructure to export that. You can still use the same LNG trains. You can still use the same ships to transport that. But essentially, we've removed carbon from a process or from the atmosphere and been able to transport that hydrogen and so the similar thing applies to things like ammonia, as MHC that we're exploring, there's methanol. So everything has an applicability to help decarbonise whatever industry that we're looking at. Things like adhesives, things like plastics. It's not just around energy generation that hydrogen can have a role to play. And so we're looking at all of those angles. Such an interesting point, that breadth of discussion, it goes beyond pure energy provision, doesn't it? Yeah, we often get hung up in energy and that's one of those things that I've read a couple of books, you know, even Bill Gates' books, it, it talks about the sectors and the decarbonisation of sectors. There's transport, there's energy, there's manufacturing, there's all these things that we all have a carbon footprint, but we all seem to focus always just on energy. Yes, it is a very significant amount and we are an energy intensive world, I, I suppose, but we do have to look the total breadth of carbon emissions and how we can reduce those. Have you got any parting comments to share with the listener base? So we are primarily getting listenership from Australia, but it goes across the world. There's a growing listenership in the States, in Canada, Europe, New Zealand as well. Yeah. So I think 
sort of parting comments and thoughts is really we need to be moving now. And the point of talking about hydrogen and more white papers and more policy positions, we actually need to start landing some projects on the ground. There's a lot of talk about projects. And so I think it's really key also to take a bit of a coordinated approach across Australia. That's one point I made earlier that we should be doing that as Australia rather than competing states of who can do what first. As I said, there will be enough to go around when the target goal is to get to export. So how do we coordinate between the states in the early stages to get the industry activated and make sure that we don't end up with multiple different standards, multiple different regulations, making sure that we can trade the commodity across the globe into the future. So I think that's a a really important step and a really important step to start to move these policies and regulations along faster. You know, we need to fast track that project approval process. We need to fast track approvals and legislation to get through. Otherwise, we will lag behind. And there's many countries that are looking at hydrogen production. I'd hate for us as a a West Australian and, and as an Australian for us to miss out on what could be a great opportunity for not only our generation, but also future generations, not only an economic basis, but also playing a part in carbon reductions across the globe. That's a a really important thing, I think. That's huge and such a powerful message to end on. And I'd just like to thank you for your time, Russell, and sharing such a wealth of knowledge that you have. I'm sure the listeners will have extremely enjoyed it. No, I I really appreciate the opportunity, Andy, and I I love what I do. I I get the opportunity to come and, and talk about hydrogen and work in the hydrogen industry on a daily basis for a great company like ATCO and I was doing a commerce degree over 20 years ago and didn't really like it. I hated it and switched across and suddenly found myself in a traineeship in gas distribution, digging holes for a living. Back then, I never would have imagined that I'd be here at this point being able to work in this space. And so I think message out there as well to, to listeners, if if you want to do something, follow the dream, follow the opportunity that you want and, and work in something that excites you and gets you up out of bed every day and still loving life and enjoying what you do. Great stuff. Thanks again, Ross. Thanks again, Andy. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time.